Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Uh, I'm a dumb, drooling Game Boy player. Uh, Sega! <laughs> Wizard Holden McNeely. Uh. <laughs> this will all make sense in time. Hey, playing games on the go with my Game Boy, I know I've got a gray best friend. Black and white, yeah, it's dumb, but it feels quite all right because I can play Tetris now. Bruiser, Jake, and uh, listen, the world of digital entertainment, the world of portable electronics, the very idea that uh, playing games, listening to music, computing, communicating, all are done with a personal device wherever you are is not something that was always around. For the Holden, you, we are alive long enough to remember the computer room. Oh, uh, The yeah. one room in the house where there was one computer and you had to wait for your turn to sit and use the computer. Well, not only that, I remember flipping out because I got a watch, a Super Mario Brothers watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that played a horrible version of it wasn't Super Mario. I don't know what that game was, but it 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 a little man was on my screen on my wrist, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking I was the luckiest boy in the world because I could play the video games inside of the classroom. Oh, that was a huge huge deal, and uh, I felt like I was a double oh seven or something. I thought you know what I mean. First of all, I'm actually a diehard defender of uh, weird Game and Watch LCD Mario. I like have I, it's somewhere in a box in my apartment right now, but it is like one of my favorite bespoke items uh, for this episode. I actually busted out my old Game Boy Pocket nice. that I found in the, of course, transparent plastic. And uh, this will come into play later. One of the few games that made it with me this entire time. Oh That's my right. God, you Bart flashbacks. Simpson escapes Camp Deadly. Oh, Imagineering <laughs> Entertainment. Ooh, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna find you. Ruined all my favorite franchises in in, uh, in, in video game licenses. But it it feels like there is an un the, for maybe I, I don't know if anybody younger than 38 actually listens to this podcast. But the reverence of the Game Boy is like one of the most like beloved and hallowed devices in the history of digital entertainment. It is uh, still in use by chiptune musicians. It is iconic in its portrayals on screen. 
even uh, they made that Tetris movie on Apple TV, if you remember. And there's a scene where they like unveil the Game Boy and they talk about it like it's the fucking Shroud of Turin. April, if you could just. It was for if me. If you could play. It was for me. Just like the way they talk about this fucking thing. It's called the Game Boy. Protests are taking place across the Soviet Union. Its maker, Nintendo, has already sold out twice in Japan, and it's on its way to doing the same thing in America, where sales have exceeded $110 million this holiday season, and demand is showing no signs of letting up. Borders are being opened across Eastern Europe. That is in no small part thanks to Tetris, the hit new game that has entire families clamoring to play. Mikhail Gorbachev has resigned, and the red flag has been lowered at the Kremlin. Best Christmas ever. When I came downstairs, I had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles blimp waiting for me, mm-hmm. and a it was given to both my brother and I. It was a co-gift, the Game Boy and Tetris, and a few more games. And I my life was forever changed because I not only all of a sudden could I play video games within my home made by Nintendo, but I could take it with me. I have had so many fond memories of my Game Boy on road trips. I remember I have I have beaten, I remember I beat all of Zelda Link's Awakening almost entirely on a road trip to the beach. I had to finish it, a little bit of it when I got there. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it solved the eternal boredom of the road trip mm-hmm. for me. Like, Airplanes, road trips, school buses, everything. Even just lazy afternoons in the living room where like you didn't want to like sit on the ground in front of your Nintendo. It really was just this this wonderful thing. And I was growing up, I to this day, I'm obsessed with like personal electronics, like gadgets, gizmos, anything that has like a screen, a battery, and a processor. Just I am drawn to and I actually got a Game Gear. It was something that I was begging my parents for over and over one of again. Those kids, ladies and gentlemen, I had both. I had both. <laughs> I was never a both console kid, except in this one oh, respect. I, I would have definitely made friends with you, even if I didn't like you, so I could play some of that Game Gear. Absolutely, Jake. If we went to school together, as part of my, this is like this is one of my. I guess I'm weak against books like if it's not resources for the podcast i do very little reading for personal enjoyment so so if you do end up in a turn-based fight against jake definitely throw books at him Mm -hmm. he's incredibly weak to them he will almost immediately crumble to the ground uh and you could get his you could loot him for i was an english major in college i've read the western (laughs) canon i've read so much and but like if it comes down to it i really do not read for personal enjoyment uh but my parents aware of this when i was a little kid was like all right you little bastard all right you dumb chubby motherfucker who we love very deeply (laughs) who we appreciate and value, you fat, idiot, weird little kid. They'd never talk to me like that. They would never. Um, (laughs) We're going to give you a list, and you have to check off 50 books. You have to show us that you've read 50 books because we're genuinely worried about how much you are drawn to <laughs> and if, screens. And if you do, we're going to give you something that will make it so that you never have to read another book yeah. again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I got the Game Gear over the course of a summer, and I loved it dearly. And then within a couple of years, I just kind of went back to the Game Boy. Yeah. Because 
for all of its full color glory, the Game Boy as a holistic product was just a more satisfying experience. The game selection, even like the the music, like the way it just produced sounds was like more pleasing. I looked into that, by the way. I found I found an answer for us. Uh, oh, thank uh, God. A little bit in terms of the the sound difference between the Game Gear and the Game Boy. And the batteries were such a motherfucker. The batteries were truly, it just devoured them like it was nobody's business. And you're when you're a kid, very specifically, when you're a kid, you don't get to buy batteries. Yeah, batteries aren't just like around. Like, yeah. yeah, your mom will get pissed at you if you use up all the batteries like that. And also, if you remember this, while the, the and we'll get more into detail on it, but while the Game Gear is, is out, Game Boy's like, oh, hey, remember that how this ran on like four AA batteries? Now you only need like two AAA batteries <laughs> for the Game Boy Pocket or whatever the fuck it was, mm-hmm. like the slip. So they were figuring out how to get even more horsepower out of less battery power while the Game Gear was just like, you had to carry, yeah, you had you essentially had to carry a trash bag filled with batteries around with you, both to fight off people who were trying to steal your game gear and use it uh, to power the game gear. And I do remember that being an issue at the onset and thinking to myself, why do I want a portable system that I kind of have to plug into the wall in order to enjoy? <laughs> and it did make less sense to me uh, as I saw my, I was it was definitely one of those systems I was so happy to have a friend or two who had them because I had Sonic Mania and we've talked about this before. This kind of is an interesting like full circle episode to our first episode where of course we did Nintendo versus Sega. This is a bit of a continuation of that uh, as we find, uh, you know, the Game Boy hitting the handheld market in a way that took everyone by surprise that just became this smash hit on the heels of the NES. Nintendo could do no wrong at the time and Sega always always attempting to stand in their way and throw a wrench in their whole plans with a competing system. I to to yeah, technically the first episode was just about Sonic the Hedgehog, but to tell the story of Sonic the Hedgehog is to tell the story about the corporate rivalry between Sega and Nintendo and more specifically how Sega of America basically warped an entire generation's mind into just making the nation's Nintendo users self-conscious about being dumb little babies uh-huh. and how Sonic is cool and grown up. And on Genesis, you can play big boy football and get the real blood in Mortal Kombat. Yeah. And it caught Nintendo by surprise and kind of drove them crazy. Sonic bit. smokes Marlboro Reds, dude. <laughs> Fucking Mario smokes Parliament Ultralights. You choose. You choose, kid. Who do you want to fucking hang out with after school? All right. Sega's ads during this era basically called children the arsler <laughs> if they enjoyed Mario. You have to watch the old Sega Game Gear commercials. They are fucking hilarious. They are that was the character I was doing at the very top of the show. They literally are just showing like drooling like rednecks. Oh, yeah. I'm sitting sorry. on a wooden porch. April, if you can play the uh especially the pig lips clip from the Game Gear Some People Like It commercial. Just to really hit home how at the jugular this company (laughs) was trying to get people to like disdain this gray brick that had brought them joy. Some people are content to be entertained by simple one color electronics. 
<laughs> Somehow these people have just never heard of Game Gear. The multicolor portable from Sega with tons of new titles. Yeah, some people are like that. But then some people like to eat pickled pork lips. System Games sold Saturday. It's such a 90s, like, attitude era, batshit crazy, aggressive, and so, like, it's like they're trying to bully you into getting a Sega Game Gear. It is so wild. And, uh, I, you know, and Nintendo just had no idea what to do with it. Uh, uh, you know, but what they did was they sat back and they made incredibly good games and they stuck to their guns with a simple and effective handheld system that uh, would stand the test of time. I mean, they also went a little nuts with their marketing. Uh, like, Nintendo, play it loud era Nintendo, because they couldn't be evil. They yeah. couldn't be aggressive. They couldn't be violent. They couldn't be sexual. So what Nintendo tried to do in the American market was like, uh, okay, well, we're not babies. We're fucking crazy. We're so random. Like, uh, so many Nintendo commercials. Of we're t- <laughs> We really got into it during the Kirby episode uh-huh. with, like, how fucking weird and angry they made Kirby in yeah. the American commercials. <laughs> or, okay, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Okay, they can't be violent. They can't be sexual. So Nintendo fires back with, like, gross wet mouth Wario animated commercial for Mario Land 2. If you remember, like, look into my eyes. It's me, Wario. <laughs> like, uh, I'm sorry. April, I've been already calling out a lot of clips for you this episode. We'll ease up. I promise. Just get me some of that wet mouth Wario commercial <laughs> for uh, Mario Land 2. Obey me, Wario. I am your master. Mario is your enemy. The wicked imposter Wario has cast an evil spell over Mario Land. Don't let Mario get the six golden coins. Don't let Mario reach the palace. This is the biggest, most dangerous, most challenging Game Boy adventure yet. Obey Wario. Destroy Mario. Don't fall under Wario's evil spell in Super Mario Land 2. Only on Game Boy. (laughs) All right. Pig lips, wet mouth Wario. Come on, April (laughs) Edit! Please play a commercial for Donkey Kong Land. (laughs) What's the reaction to new Donkey Kong Land? With four wild new worlds, 30 savage new levels, cool computer model graphics, and more head-banging bad guys. It's all the excitement of Donkey Kong Country. Now on Game Boy. This game is so hairy, you're gonna need shots. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into the history of the Game Boy, and I want to give Gunpei Yokoi more of his due in this episode than we were able to give him in the Virtual Boy episode. And then, oh, of course, get- Holden, Holden, due to some recent revelations, as that has come up in the past couple of years. I kind of want to give him less Oh, credit. my God. I feel like you are just a weird Gunpei Yokoi-like plant from Sega that's no, just no, been trying okay. to tarnish his reputation. Ever since we started the show, you were like, let's talk about Gunpei Yokoi's a piece of dick No, bag. he is not a piece and of dick like, bag. I'm like, Jake, why would we He's say j- these things? The world wants to make Willy Wonkas out of fucking anybody who makes corporations tons of money. Stanley, Look, just because he killed a bunch of kids by shoving him down a chocolate waterfall tube doesn't mean he's Willy Wonka. Uh, 
<laughs> to be fair, that's just a rite of passage for all Japanese children, but that's I'm not here to judge cultures. Um, no, the the actual creation of the Game Boy is one of corporate quibbling, of compromises, of egos, of corporate espionage. It really isn't just like Gunpei Yokoi in a man in a fanciful hat being like, who can take an LCD? Make it black and white. Add some fun new games and everything will be all right. The Gunpei Man. Like, it's not. It's actually an, a really, a really tragic story of, like, people kind of uh, trying to save face and maintain the favor of uh, of a insanely old, crotchety Japanese Possibly Yakuza Tide CEO. Oh, surely Yakuza Tide CEO. But yeah, he was also, you know, Disney-like in his way. Uh, well, we'll get, we'll have to get into more of that. But let's start at the very beginning. Gunpei Yokoi. He uh, was born and raised in Kyoto, Japan, and later got a degree in electronics from Doshisha University. Uh, and early on, a, a wizard approached him and said, "Would you like the magical power?" Holding do the wizard voice. Would Dude. you like the magical power of invention? And Interesting. Please, sir, please, can I have the wonderful <laughs> power of invention? And then the wizard was like, then you shall have it here. And he sprinkled fairy dust <laughs> on Gunpei Yokoi, <laughs> and he's Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> After college, he found work at a company that specialized in playing cards and was hired to maintain and manufacture the machines that made the cards. The year was 1965, and this was the Nintendo Playing Card Company. At this time, Nintendo was looking elsewhere for new avenues to profits outside of just cards. And it should be noted, they cornered the playing card market, making dodgy gambling playing cards in cahoots with the Yakuza, hence Jake's earlier comment. So, you know, Nintendo's a bunch of badass motherfuckers, mm -hmm. you heard? Mm -hmm. So they turned to children's toys, though, instead. And then-President Hiroshi Yamuchi, great-grandson of the founder of Nintendo, asked Gunpei to design, quote, something great, end quote, for their games division. He responds with the Ultra Hand, a simple extending arm that can grab things at a distance. Simple but brilliant stuff. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The way I heard this story was that Yamauchi was just like walking around the card factory and uh, Yokoi was literally, he had just whipped together this little extendo grabby hand with kind of a scissor accordion-y mechanism and he was just fucking around with it and Yamauchi was just like, hey, where'd you get that? And Yokoi was like, oh, I made it. 
it's neat, right? It goes clicky clacky. <laughs> and Yamauchi is like, took the longest drag right. of the most unfiltered cigarette you've ever seen. It's like, listen, kid, you got the goods. <laughs> How'd you like to delight children with me? <laughs> also, if anybody asks, this money came from a proper source and not taking fingers off of men. And then Gunpei said, I don't really understand the line about delighting children with you, but I'm willing to invent some toys. <laughs> I don't know about all the other stuff you're trying to say to me right now. Hold on, I gotta go beat up a Korean guy who owes me 50 bucks. <laughs> I'm fucking Yamauchi. <laughs> Look, regardless, the hand is a big hit for Nintendo, and Gunpei transfers from assembly line to research and development. Fast forward to Nintendo gaining interest in the video games industry. Gunpei is made the head of one of three competing teams, Research and Development 1. Number one, because Gunpei was the guy. We're like not even talking about like at, oh, at least over a dozen of hit plastic children's playthings that Yokoi developed. There was a pitching machine. I think what was it? Ultra Arm or something. Yeah. There was the Billions uh, rotating puzzle, which a, a Rubik's Cube fan like you might appreciate. Mm -hmm. Like the man was on a hit streak. So, of course, the number one R&D division was going to be led by Yamauchi's number one guy. Gunpei Yokoi. And they start out focusing on handheld games, and this is actually based on a legendary caves behind his house moment in Nintendo lore. Gunpei is riding on a train, and he sees a cave sitting across from him riding on the train as well, uh, and he ends up exploring it. And uh, that's how he ends up... God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> April, I, maybe if you can get away with it, cut that. <laughs> cut that and don't put it in the episode. Now he sees this businessman riding on the train and the guy's killing time by futzing with an LCD calculator. And Gunpei realizes he could use LCD technology for gaming and sees huge potential for success with people on the move. In order to accomplish this task, Yokoi needed some help creating the guts for the system, for which he turned to Satoru Okada, another important player in the development later of the Game Boy. Okada also directed two big hits for the NES. He did Metroid and Kid Icarus. So he's like all he's on top of his game on like all these different levels but at Nintendo. This is key. In R&D 1, uh Gunpei is the toy maker, the the like the physical object, the mechanical thing, you know, uh and Okada is the is the electronics guy. He's yes. the one that's actually going to figure out what processor can activate the LCD matrix in what way, what parts to use. Uh, so, like, for example, in something like the Game & Watch, uh, it was Yokoi that was like, oh, we can take the uh, guts of a calculator instead of activating numbers, we can have it move characters around and make little games. And how are you going to control it? It's too small for a joystick. The D-pad. Yes. He invents the D-pad. Meanwhile, it's Okada who actually has to figure out the programming, the transistors, the resistors. Like, how do we actually get this fucking thing to do? Because that's outside of Yokoi's understanding, outside of his training. And actually, their, their partnership was first formed in the 70s when Yokoi brought in an idea for what would eventually be the light gun used for NES games. And he partnered with Okada to, he said, here, here's the picture of it. You now go and make it a reality. 
essentially. Uh, and so that's where they started off. So when it came to the Game & Watch, Okada saw that game devices were all being marketed to kids and saw an opportunity to market a device to adults that they could take on the go. He also picked up a portable console by Mattel that used an LCD screen and saw the potential for their own LCD device. That, that I free- Oh, what was the name of that thing? I looked up a video of it. It's so crazy. So there was definitely um, some tech out there before the Game of Watch and the Game Boy, but it is like so rudimentary. Anyways, that's a side note. I think I have more on that later, actually. Okay. Um, so Okada said, we wrote a proposal up, and when we showed it to President Yamauchi, he said, let's have R&D2 handle this. But when we took our plans to R&D2, they rejected it. They said, this looks too difficult. It's not technically possible. And then he said, knowing that our plans on paper weren't enough to convince anyone, we set out to first build our own working prototype with an LCD screen. At the time, we didn't have a PC. So first, Yokoi drew a mock-up of the screen, he imagined, then grabbed a light and put it behind that paper, uh, turning it on and off to simulate what the game would look like. I then took that idea and converted it into actual electronic form. Up until then, I'd never programmed anything, but I knew I would need those skills eventually. So I bought an NEC TK80. I created a drive circuit to power the LCD lamps and programmed everything on my own. This bro's crafty, dude. (laughs) So the result of this is the Game & Watch, a handheld console that only played one game. There were six different games slash consoles when it first released, so you'd have to get each one individually. Uh, And you've got the D-pad... You also had very clever design installed into these little systems, uh, which used affordable components used in digital calculators. And that led to a nice, hefty battery life, which is something they were already taking into account at that point. So it's these compact, reasonably affordable, uh, simple game experiences. A good hit for Nintendo right out the gate. The Yes, the Game & Watch was uh, the, the idea of a watch... Like there, the idea was like, no, 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 it's not just a game. It's also a portable alarm clock. And like, you can use it as a serious thing. Right. And uh, this was a huge moment, you know, during the great economic revival of Japan after World War II. And one of the key industries that was booming at the time was watchmaking, Casio, Seiko, Citizen. All of these companies were producing and advancing LCD digital display technology, which meant that they had lots of partners and uh, manufacturers that they could work with to make these things possible where, you know, in other countries, they didn't have those resources. So Nintendo kept having ideas. These manufacturers had new and better screens and wanted those contracts. It created a lot of collaboration and back and forth with these corporate partners. And as it would later turn out, that competition and that kind of uh, backroom dealing would drastically affect the fate of the Game Boy. Also, using the technology already existing in calculators and digital watches is a perfect example of Gunpei's major design strategy referred to as lateral thinking of withered technology. Essentially, this is instead of constantly trying to push the limits of new tech I'm looking at you, Sony. I'm looking at you, Microsoft. Instead of doing that, 
They were looking at what already existed and how they could implement that technology in creative ways to create really strong price points, to create very solid products that were incredibly uh, consistent. Mm -hmm. And that's really been their whole situation up until now. We all look towards Nintendo not as the people who are pushing the technology forward. That's never, ever what they do. What they do best... Well, when they do do it, they kind of fuck up. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Wii U. I'm looking at you. You, unfortunately, GameCube, and in a lot of ways, I'm looking at you N64. But I'm also looking at you Wii. Mm-hmm. Wii was pretty good. Wii was great. And Switch. And Switch. With that cool port, you can just put it in and it pops onto your TV like magic. He's Willy Wonka. <laughs> so anyways, there's, that's where we are when we're getting into the creation of the Game Boy. But you have to set all that stuff up with the Game & Watch because the Game Boy is essentially combining the NES with the Game & Watch. Ooh, that's... Oh, God, Holton, you don't know the th- shit I've I've been I've been uncovering. You, you I see all so, the new gray hairs in your beard. You look withered and haggard. And what, what is no. up with that giant wooden staff you've been carrying around, Jake? I, I've received the knowledge, Holton. <laughs> I have gone to the caves behind the house. <laughs> I have d- gazed deeply into the crystal, liquid crystal display. Right. I have such sights for you. All right. I'm such a- delight. <laughs> Where we're going, we won't need eyes Whoa. to see. I went full. I went full yeah, of Ben Horizon. Full, you went full of Ben Horizon. <laughs> uh, so yeah, th- th- let's get into the Game Boy. Uh, Yokoi is trying to come. To, well, what what would you have to say about what I just said about combining the Nintendo Entertainment System uh, with the Game and Watch in, in this way? Uh, the, 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 okay. Uh, yeah. So this exact era of Nintendo that we are talking about has been uh, recently kind of blown wide open with the work of a French gaming historian called Florent Giorgi. I can't pronounce his French-ass name. He has developer interviews and diaries with the people that made the Game Boy. And it is Le Histoire de Nintendo, Volume 4, 1989 to 1999. It is not available in English. I only have semi-translated uh, excerpts that I found on Reset Era, as well as an amazing half-hour-long documentary made by the YouTube channel Low Spec Gamer, who, uh, please keep listening to this episode because all of these bombshells are from uh, Gorge's book and this video that basically translates and presents a lot of the information from the book. But in between the Game & Watch and the Game Boy, the Famicom comes out, as well as the Nintendo Entertainment System in America, and is a massive hit. This is by R&D2, and the head of that department is Masayuki Uemura. And Uemura, even though he's like only two years younger than Gunpei Yokoi, he's kind of like the young hotshot who shows up. He wasn't with the crew from the beginning, and he had this crazy idea of making a whole-ass computer using a uh, adapted version of the CMOS uh, 6502 processor. You know it, you love it. It's a massive hit. And it kind of runs counter to Yokoi's whole philosophy. It was like a little bit cutting edge. They're experimenting with like uh, floppy disks and creating, uh, you know, you can program on it. It is, it is the, it marks a huge departure from Nintendo's roots as a toy company. They are now fully an electronics company. And Yokoi is kind of uh, looking for his next big thing. And his vision of the Game Boy is just kind of a 
uh, kind of just a more advanced version of the Game & Watch. The Walkman has become a almost necessity of modern living, portable personal electronics that allow you to take what should be home-based entertainment and use it personally on the go is like fully a part of the zeitgeist now. And he is looking to take just a more advanced version of the Game & Watch. It is his partner, Satoru Okada, that we mentioned before, his electronics guy, his computer wizard, that really wants to take this idea and make it a portable Nintendo. He wants our Famicom. It's Okada that is constantly pushing for Gunpei to like expand the idea of what the Game Boy is going to be, to make it its own standalone platform and something that like would just fully take the Famicom experience on the go. And Yokoi does not like this. Yokoi genuinely either it goes against his toy design philosophy because, you know, he doesn't want to make a compute platform. It's outside of his wheelhouse. It's outside of his vision. Or simply, he doesn't want to give uh, Uemaru, or I'm sorry, Uemura, the Famicom guy, even more clout. Because before the Famicom was like cemented as the single greatest product that Nintendo had ever made, it was Yokoi was like the 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 heir apparent to Yamauchi, the CEO. Like Gunpei, Gunpei Yokoi was the number two guy until all this Famicom shit kind of shook the cage a little and rattled him because he didn't believe in the project. He thought it was a little too fancy pants. Okada said. Uh, and, and this is a excerpt from the Le uh, Histori de Nintendo Volume Four. Uh, Okada says, "I was completely against Yokoi's vision, even though he was my immediate superior. I would always stand up to him. One day during a meeting, he finally snapped. He was fed up, and so he said to me, "Okay, I've had enough. Do what you want.' So I replied, "Fine. Are you giving me full responsibility for everything?" And since he agreed." The Game Boy Project took the path that seemed safest to me. There were other people working on this project, uh, such as engineer Yoshihiro Taki, who worked very closely with Gunpei Yokoi, and his role in all of this will become very apparent. But at some point, Yokoi lost the uh, lost the thread. Another excerpt from the book says uh, there were two camps within R&D 1 in constant conflict with each other. Gunpei Yokoi, the director's camp, and Satoru Okada, the assistant director. The two men strongly disagreed with each other as to what direction the DMG product, i.e. the Game Boy, if you know the model number of the Game Boy is the DMG 1, that stands for Dot Matrix Game, the LCD technology, they disagreed with each other as to what direction the DMG project should take. Meetings would end in disaster with people calling each other names on a near daily basis. Yeah, it seems like uh, also it was essentially Yokoi wanting to make the Game & Watch Part 2. Uh, and it being way more about that and him, you know, and it was really him, he who wanted to lean into black and white uh, monochrome uh, approach to this stuff. And it was uh, our our boy Okada who was like, no, 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 
I want this to be a portable Famicom, and therefore I want to take the time and really make sure we do this right. And he was pushing for a longer development cycle as well uh, for the system. And I think that that was kind of a lot of their butting heads. Is, uh, Yoko was like, no, 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 we just need to get something out. We need to like just take Game Watch to the next step. But he said about the black and white, Yokoi said, To my way of thinking, color need not be the main attraction of a game. When you think about it, black and white can actually be better than color, since a color screen would drain the batteries faster and would be harder to see under bright lighting. Uh, for those reasons, the choice of screen for the Game Boy wasn't really a technical problem, but was more about the integrity of the product concept, which was meant to be black and white. Uh, and it was uh, Okada who then had to figure out how to take all of this stuff is kind of like that scene in Apollo 13, uh, how to take all of this stuff and like shove it into a not too bulky handheld device. Uh, one thing though, uh, real quick is for the LCD screen, they ended up partnering with sharp corporation, which made a custom LCD screen for the game. Board. Oh my God. Hold in this story. Yeah. This story is going to blow your fucking bean. Um, so, when the decision to make a portable console came out, they wanted to use a dot matrix display as opposed to a segmented display, which is what you would recognize from clocks, watches, and calculators, where each kind of pixel, quote unquote, is just its own distinct shape, and they turn them on and off to make the numbers and letters. Japanese is a much tougher language to render in these kind of displays. So immediately, Japanese electronics makers were working hard to reduce the size of the segments until they could be used like pixels. Tons of these companies were working on personal digital assistants, electronic dictionaries, all of these text-based applications, and none of them wanted to work with Nintendo. In the video by Low Spec Gamer, they talk about uh, Rico and um, and uh, and Panasonic all just not even responding to Nintendo's request. One company that absolutely did give a pitch to Nintendo was the Citizen Watch Company, which at this point was making tons of electronic devices, including stuff like um, personal digital assistants, as well as full color portable televisions. And so they presented Yokoi and Okada with their pitch for the uh, technologies that they would use. One was a black and white twisted pneumatic display, uh, just a, the standard technology that was basically used at the time. And they had a color display that they were really excited about. The only problem was the color display cost three times as much and it required a compact fluorescent backlight. Mm. You have to understand the way LCDs work is they don't, it's not like an OLED screen. They just filter light and block it. And what you're seeing is the reflector bouncing back the light in the room at you. If you're talking about a standard calculator or digital watch, because the color layers are blocking specific wavelengths of light, that's more layers between you and the light source. So a color screen needs massive amounts of light to push those photons back out at you. And this is an era before LEDs. Nowadays, you everything's got little blinky lights on it. Making light is easy, power efficient, perfect. To get a color backlight to work, you need a fucking full-on fluorescent bulb with ballast and massive voltages to even turn the thing on. 
they agree with Citizen to use the black and white, much cheaper, much more efficient screen. An issue comes up, though, because Nintendo was working closely with Sharp, and Sharp executives heard about the deal with Citizen, walked into CEO uh, Yamauchi's office, and was like, you fucked us, you fucked us big time, I thought we were your boys, we were your boys, you fucking with us, we'll fuck with you, we will bury you. I'm sure in Japan it was just like, we are very disappointed with your recent decision. And then, <laughs> like, and then, and Yo- and then the- Yokoi was like, ah, do you know I got these scars? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the very polite version of, I thought we were your boys, you fucking us, was. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yamauchi immediately goes back and tells... The Game Boy team, we're not working with Citizen, we're working with Sharp. Capiche? It is now up to Yokoi to uh, just kind of tell Citizen that even though we had already like shaken hands and this was a go, we're not doing this. And that is another incredibly fraught, incredibly high tension scenario that is, again, it's all about formality. It's all about respect. It's all about outward politeness in this corporate culture. So what Yokoi does is he offloads the responsibility to tell Citizen that they're backing out of the deal to uh, one of his underlings, Yoshihiro Taki, who is one of the more technical guys. Yoshihiro, a shy, uh, 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 tinkering man, has no idea how he's going to break the news. And so his scheme is he is going to slap together the rough outline and schematics for a color version of the Game Boy that they are going to use Citizen's fancy color screen for. And so like, no, 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 no. We're not fucking you over. We're just saving money and planning more so that when it's time to do the real Game Boy, you're our guys, you're our boys, huh? Isn't that great? He gives Citizen the plans, tells them that they're not buying the black and white screens, and then ghosts them and hopes that they'll get the message. I believe, I think I used the exact phrasing from the Low Spec Gamer video just then. It's, a, it's, it's fascinating. A year later, the Game Gear comes out and it has a color screen with a fluorescent backlight and Yoshihiro Taki, the curious little guy he is, disassembles it and wouldn't you know it, it has a color screen made by Citizen wow. and uses a lot of his 
loose outlines for how the system would be built. No shit. Okay. They did a fucking PlayStation. They fucked over one of their partners and they just ran over and created their biggest competitor in the process. That's, that's, yeah, that's a Nintendo uh, classic right there for sure. Now, after all of this, after all of this, they put together a prototype using the sharp display and they give it to Yamauchi, who kind of is struggling to make it work. He's, he's twisting around and like bobbing his head. He's holding it in all weird angles. And he claims the viewing angle is atrocious. He can't make out what's happening on screen. And this is actually a massive flaw in the LCD technology of the time. The way it basically works is the twisted pneumatic crystals in the LCD screen will align itself once a certain voltage is applied. However, the difference between on and off is a relatively small amount of voltage. And so the classic kind of smeary look of a Game Boy where there's ghosting and characters are like kind of blurring as they move was even worse in this initial prototype. The viewing angles are terrible because just like it, the, the, the response time of the pixels is so bad. The contrast is terrible. Yamauchi cancels the project right then and there. He says, nah, we're not doing it. At this point, the project has become so absolutely cursed in Nintendo's offices that they've taken the uh, code name, the Dot Matrix game, the DMG, and they're calling it the Dame game, aka the terrible game, uh-uh. the bad game, the cursed game. It's not until Yoshihiro Taki is talking with one of his contacts at Sharp that he tells them, oh, we fixed that. We're about to uh, start production on a new technology called super twisted pneumatic displays, which involve kind of making the crystals in the LCD display like they have even more twists in them. They're even further rotated. So the voltage necessary between on and off is a much sharper drop. It is like they're not on, they're not on, they're not on. And then when it reaches a voltage threshold, bam, it clicks into place much faster than the older black and white technology. At this point, the Super Famicom is kind of shitting the bed a little as well. Fucking big boy, goddamn super dude, Masayuki Uemura, the Famicom guy, is kind of flailing a little. And Yamauchi is desperate for something new to come out. They, they, they have a gap in their like release schedule because the Super Famicom is taking too long. They present the updated screen to Yamauchi and they approve of it. And the Game Boy is going to go into production. Now, Holden, there was one more thing that was fucking things over. And it has to do with all these back and forth bickering between Nintendo. Hold it for love of God, say something funny. I've just been like rattling Japanese names. <laughs> I'm just sitting, I'm frozen by the facts. Okay. Uh, my guess is the CPU. Is, are you going to talk about the CPU The right CPU now? is another fucking holding point. Oh, Fart and Frank just showed up. Oh! Bam! <laughs> oh, that's my song today. See you later, God. You're my best oh. friend, Farting Frank. I love, I love you, Farting Frank. I love you. Because for Okada, just to keep these names straight, Okada is Yokoi's second in command, the one that really wants to push the Game Boy to be its own standalone video game platform. 
His dream is a portable Famicom. Yes. And the Famicom runs a Ryko-made version of the CMOS 6502. Side note, that's the same CPU used in the Commodore 64. And it's uh, the system that Satoru Iwata, uh, just fucking Satoru Iwata fame, cut his teeth on. And it's the reason why HAL Laboratories is such a fucking OG banger on the original Nintendo is because they were like the only dudes in Japan that knew how to program for that CPU. Okada wants to use the 6502 to make the Game Boy so that people that have already made games for the Famicom can easily just port their games to the Game Boy. Like you just fuck with the color palette a little and you can just basically make Nintendo games for the Game Boy. It's Famicom boy Uemaru who is already struggling with uh, Raiko to get the processor for the Super Famicom out the door, explicitly forbids R&D1 from using that platform. Yeah, just showing more and more contention. Now, this is actually interesting, though, when we get to the Game Gear Mm -hmm. and how it kind of... This would have been a... a, Who knows Mm -hmm. what would the Game Boy would have been if they had gotten this Rico CPU because that is kind of what fucked the Game Gear. The Game Gear is essentially... Uh, the CPU from the Sega Master System. Right. And kind of is why also the Game Gear doesn't sound as good. They essentially just took the Master System and just shoved it into a tiny handheld, which I think is where what kind of basically fucked them in terms of being a competitive force against the Game Boy. Whereas the Game Boy, they go back to Sharp. Sharp develops a CPU for their screen that they developed. And it's created this very much its own piece of technology that isn't just a rework of something already in, in existence, which, uh, uh, and, or at least it is a rework of LCD calculators and stuff like that, but it's not a rework of uh, the NES, the Famicom, and all the stuff going on with that, which I think may have caused a lot of issues for the Game Boy if they had gone that route. And uh, that's how we get to the Game Boy that we have today because the Game Boy is very, it's like, it feels like a Nintendo product, but it doesn't feel like an NES you know, uh, whereas I feel like the Game Gear just feels like a portable, like Sega Master System, Sega Genesis. It is. It all. It 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 literally is. You can just use an adapter to cram a Master System cart into a Game Gear, and it plays it just fine. And and the basic uh, hardware for the Game Boy was such that when Okada went to form it all together into one package, he found that it had to be a vertical display, which was uh, just literally due to the tech limitations. It probably would have been a horizontal handheld mm. uh, if it weren't for the specs going on there. So that's what created that. Also, shout outs to Okada, who was the driving force behind the Game Boy having link play, allowing for two players each with a Game Boy to link up for two-player games. And he had no idea how this technology would be implemented. And of course, he would have no idea how successful Pokemon would be in the future. Which, you know, just a crazy... But he just knew he had... Deep down, he was just like... We need this link play thing. Mm -hmm. We need people to be able to play two player games and stuff like that. And then beautifully executed on that in the future. Before I swear to God, nobody fucking used that link cable before Pokemon. No. Like you would bring the link cable. You would like, it was always like, it was kind of a headache. You had to like make sure this. It was always in your like carrying case or whatever that you had. Yeah. But you never used it. And two player Tetris just isn't that great. No. (laughs) 
And that was like, well, yeah. I love it on a big screen altogether, but it's not great yeah. when you can't look at the other player. You, you can't like get stressed out about the other player or, right. or, or laugh at them when you give them a bunch of trash. Uh, so it just t- takes kind of takes that experience away. If you really want to get like fucking nutty with it for the uh, sharp processor that is in the Game Boy or system on a chip, like like you give a shit about like bit registers and RAM allocation. There is a great video on YouTube called the ultimate Game Boy talk. It is over an hour long and it breaks down how it processes sprites, background tiles, and just like all the little programming quirks, as well as this, just this weird bastard child of a processor that they use. That is not quite an Intel, uh, 8080, not quite a Z80 processor, it's its own hodgepodge thing that you kind of have to get to know the quirks of. So, yeah, and and so also price point was a huge deal. They had to make it somewhat affordable for people to be able to buy, and they were incredibly aware of that, unlike, let's say, the Atari Lynx mm. and uh, some of the other competitors out there. I think they knew that people wouldn't bite unless it was within a certain range and was cheaper than, like, home consoles at the very least. So they had to they had to ratchet some things down in terms of the design. Uh, one example of this is tinting the background green, a look that was considered a bit ugly by Okada, yet became a signature of the original Game Boy, um, and it was done uh, to best contrast the LCD's indigo hue because it's not actually technically black. So that that was uh, uh, one of the elements of it. Now, we've got the software and the hardware going within the machine, but what they needed after that was that killer app, the game. And, you know, we did an episode on Tetris. I did think the one thing that I found to be interesting in this was that, you know, Yokoi and Okada, they were like, we got to make a that Mario game, you know? Like, we had Super Mario Bros. for the NES. They're going to have Super Mario World as a launch title for the Super Nintendo. We need our version of that. And so they got together and they created Super Mario Land. Okada directed, Yokoi produced, and this is why this game felt a bit different, a little bit off from your normal Mario experience. A little bit, man, a lot of it. I replayed it recently. You can play it on like a web browser. Oh, I played it IRL. It is, it hits, it still hits so fucking good. I love it. I think it's great, but it's definitely, it just feels very different. And that largely is because they actually did not have Shigeru Miyamoto's input for this Mario game. And they had it for all the other Mario games. Obviously not Mario 2 as much, but it it, it, it definitely is what sets it off. And uh, it's a solid game for sure. It's a solid game for sure. But however, that was not the killer app Nintendo needed. Uh, so enter Hank. Hank motherfucking Rogers. Hank with an E. Hank with an E. With an E. Yeah, strong (laughs) Hank. uh, Who spotted a PC game called Tetris at a Las Vegas consumer electronics show. He was aware of Nintendo developing a handheld console. He felt this game would be a perfect match for it. And he managed to convince then president of Nintendo of America, Mm -hmm. Minoru Arakawa, to make Tetris the pack-in game for the Game Boy instead of Super Mario Land, which was also available at launch, but a very wise decision. Uh, There's so much more that goes into the... The creation of the game Tetris. They made a whole movie about it recently, but you can listen to our Tetris episode to get the whole uh, back on background on that. But man, what a fucking launch title, dude. I mean, that was just absolutely what sealed the deal for the Game Boy, which hit shelves in Japan in April of 1989. The first time, the first time I saw my dad 
take my Game Boy and just uh-huh. like go into a hardcore Tetris session. Yes. My child brain was like, oh, there's something different happening here. Yes. There's 100%. something way like compelling about the block game. Us gamers were as kids were weirdly marginalized. <laughs> it was baby shit for babies, <laughs> not for adults. And yeah, when the parents started to, you know, borrow the Nintendo to play Punch Out and stuff like that, it was like, okay, <laughs> the doors are starting to open now. This is becoming addictive. Uh, for not just kids, but for adults as well. And that was what they called. They called that with the Game Boy. You know? A lot of Nintendo advertising really did sell the Game Boy with Tetris to adults and business travelers. And it really wasn't until Game Gear uh, launched their attack uh, that it like that the ads got real gnarly and weird. Yeah, so Game Boy uh, hits Japan April of 1989. It sells through its entire stock of 300,000 units within two weeks. It goes to America in July of that year, and it sold 40,000 units on its first day. Atari's handheld, the Lynx, which was always kind of hovering over Nintendo the whole time as this dark shadow looming, that comes out a few months later. Uh, it was a huge dud by comparison. It went uh, for more horsepower and and therefore, it was $100 more expensive. It was much larger in size and had way worse battery life. Game Boy killed it. Foreshadowing, bitch, <laughs> as we look towards the Game Gear. But I will say this. I don't. I, now, I only have seen the links in like video game museum yeah, never like, saw installations. Even, even the rich kids that got every game did not get did it. Did not have a Lynx. And, uh, but I, there were more kids with game, game Gears out in the wild. Not that many, but... They, they existed. The Lynx is like, man, that thing just f- super came and went. That was like went the way of the Jaguar. Uh, they knew it. The Lynx has its own very fascinating uh, story because it's tied into, I believe it's a British company, Epics, and uh, their relationship with the just completely filleted and splintered Atari Games Group um, and the personalities behind that. And it's technically a very impressive thing. It has sprite scaling. It's It's... But yeah, no, just in terms of its design, in terms of its cost, in terms of its size, it just was it was dead in the water. Now, let's talk about Project Mercury. Uh, There is a competitor that's standing there looking at Nintendo and it wants to do what Nintendo don't. Nintendo's number one competitor at the time, Sega, wanted to create a handheld that directly competed with the Game Boy. They saw... All these holes in the design of the Game Boy. It's awkward vertical shape. That vomity green screen with its black and white only display or green and indigo. But whatever. (laughs) The handheld development for Sega was codenamed Project Mercury. And it was going to do everything that Nintendo was unable to accomplish with the Game Boy. Why would they not add color? We can add color, damn it. (laughs) Why not? Why not have, uh, you know... Oh, hey, Citizen seems real pissed off. I think think they're going to give us a... I think... Oh, they have a color screen. What are the odds? What are the odds? And up to that point, Sega had challenged the popularity of the Nintendo Entertainment System with the Sega Master System, and more so with the Sega Genesis, which introduced the world to another major video game mascot, Sonic the Hedgehog. 
and his pack of Marlboro Reds, dude. He'll give you one if you hang out with him long enough. They classically directly attack Nintendo with their ad campaign. Uh, I've already referenced it, uh, the Nintendo don't thing. Uh, as their 16-bit graphic-capable console, the Sega Genesis hit shelves in North America in 1989, and the Super Nintendo uh, was on its way, but not out until 1991. This is from a 1991 edition of the Sega Visions magazine, their answer to Nintendo Power, and this is their opening salvo for the release of the Game Gear. Separate the men from the boys. (laughs) Introducing the Sega Game Gear. If you're still playing with Game Boy, it's time to grow up. Game Gear is here. The new color portable video game system with arcade quality Sega games and graphics. Game Gear's advanced technology makes Game Boy look like child's play yeah they absolutely called it the game gear as a as to immediately put it into contrast from the game boy game gear you've got your gear you're a badass man with pubes and you've got a gear game not a boy game very much going after it uh immediately out the gate sega actually did have they had sold off their own rights to produce a port of tetris and had to settle with columns yeah i wanted to ask you about columns it's, what's called? It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, the Game Gear does actually have very good puzzle games, including Puyo Puyo, Great. localized in the West as famously Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Yep. As well as Paku Paku Animal, which is another great color matching kind of stack em up game. Uh, Columns is dumb. I was watching high level Columns play. And literally, you just stack shit on all sides of the screen until there's a single vertical row left empty. And then you can just drop bullshit down it. And the cascade effect, because it ma- it like matches vertical, horizontal blocks as well as diagonals of the matching color gems, the game basically plays itself if you know all the tricks. <laughs> it's not, uh, it is nowhere near the same quality as uh, Tetris. And the way that like you have to, even if you weren't cheesing it, the way that you have to like keep all the entire field in play, like you have to be aware of where all the colors are at all times. It's like more stressful and less flow statey than just Tetris where you right. kind of put the block down and now it's just part of your your pile. Right, right. It's just from the get-go, it was not that great. But, you know, it was fairly clever. Um they, by using the Zilog Z80 that was used in the original Sega SG-1000, as well as the Master System, which is technically the Mark III of that console, it allowed people, it allowed them to quickly port games that they were already going to use for the Master System. It used a slightly lower resolution than the Master System, so you couldn't it's a very weird thing where master system games that you use the converter on were kind of squashed a little when you played them on the game gear. A lot of companies would just go ahead and re-release the game for game gear in the proper resolution. And that usually just meant moving the scoreboard and like life meter around. Like you said, the sound is just kind of rough because uh, they are using this antiquated technology. Even the master system itself uh, most owners would be pressured to use a sound chip upgrade that yeah. used FM synthesis, which gave it sound quality more closely associated with the um, Genesis. 
than the actual master system. Here's okay. Here's an example. Here's an example. April, if you could play a little bit of, let's just say uh, the the Kirby. Uh, what's it like? Green, green, gray, green meadows. What's that? Yeah, in the first level. Play that Kirby music. This is the Game Boy operating on its four channels, two pulse modulators, one noise channel for bass, and then one wave channel for just like sound. Uh, sound effects, yeah. yeah. And now if you could play the minecart level from Game Gear Tasmania. And it really is, I think, a testament to creating something specifically for the Game Boy, which is what that sound chip was for for that. Whereas they were just shoving a not very good already existing hardware into a smaller device just kind of made it not not nearly as good not and and i mean with game boy i mean the chiptune music scene exists because of how strong the game boy uh music is you know and like the limitations of that creating a much more interesting scores for those games there's some like classic scores from those Nintendo games that stick with me to this day mm-hmm. because of how strong they are. Whereas the Game Gear, yeah, it's just pales in comparison. It's annoying. It's just really grating. It's also, I remember personally really just like kind of being disappointed with the ports of 16-bit franchises on the Game Gear. The Sonic games in particular, like you were used to all this spectacle and speed And most of the Sonic games were just these lesser things. It was even more like slow and plotting. The camera was zoomed in so close, A, because they were already zooming in on their own Master System ports that like you could barely see where Sonic was going. It was a lot of blind faith jumps. There was very little third party uh, developer participation, A, because famously dickish Nintendo had a lot of exclusivity deals with their partners on the Famicom. And so what we ended up getting was a lot of like Western toy, like badly shout out tie in games, license games. This was, you know, an era where uh, shitty license games were kind of the de rigueur of the era. So I had a shitty running Stimpy game, a shitty Batman game, a shitty fucking uh, Tasmania. God, I hate that Tasmania. It came pack. It was a pack in and it was awful. Yeah, yeah, that was pack in. I definitely played it when I finally got to go to a friend's house who had it. I will say there were some amazing games, like especially Sega first party developed ones. Uh, Usually when they made it for the Game Gear and not just as a Master System port, uh, Shinobi 2 is incredible. Mm -hmm. It has music from uh, Yuzo Koshiro, who you might know from the uh, Streets of Rage franchise. Uh, There were some great uh, Sega-made Disney games like Castle of Illusion with Mickey Mouse. The Shining Force franchise was on there if you were like into strategy and RPG kind of stuff. I mentioned puzzle games like the Mean Bean Machine. Um, My favorite was the Streets of Rage ports, Uh uh, especially Streets of Rage 2. Koshiro 
really just made the most out of that sound hardware with that soundtrack. And a beat em up works, whereas a Sonic game does not work. Yeah. Like a beat em up, you you can be on the screen. It's not constantly push, you know, just blurring and pushing you forward with the speed. It, it, it that's a good handheld experience, you know. But we gotta talk about that battery life. So the Game Gear took six AA batteries for three to five hours of game time for the Game Gear. This this was the this was the kicker. My parents got so sick of buying AA batteries by the truckload, <laughs> which were not cheap back then. Right. Again, right. these uh now commodity alkaline batteries. This is this is another thing people don't realize. Alkaline batteries was a like they got better yeah. and could hold charges longer within our lifetime. So like the Game Boy and the Game Gear were using older chemistry with even worse battery capacity than even the batteries we have now. Yeah. My parents got so sick of buying batteries that they actually sprung for the rechargeable battery pack, nice. which was this like dildo shaped brick. <laughs> if you can imagine a brick, that was also a dildo. I <laughs> think that weight and density uh. that took hours to charge because it used uh, nickel metal hydride chemistry. Com- again, LEDs, lithium ion batteries. These are all technologies that made uh, the smartphone revolution possible. And like these were not even in people's imaginations yet. It took like all day for that fucker to charge. And it maybe kept the Game Gear running for like an hour and a half tops. It got even worse battery life than the batteries. It Awful. was so fucking frustrating. And in contrast, the Game Boy boasts 30 hours on a mere four AA batteries. You could really, really, you know, it would last the tr- 30 hours trip. on modern alkalines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Closer to 10, 15 on sure. the batteries of the era when it first but, came but out. But you're getting through the road trip. Yes. You're getting through maybe both ways there and back mm-hmm. you know so it was just a much much better uh did you get the tv tuner did not really gear? wanted it but i feel Re- like my dude, folks portable tvs were like all the rage they would be on such tidy screens mm-hmm. barely watchable but i remember that tv tuner was a huge deal because it was like holy shit you could have fucking a tv in your pocket too game gear is amazing my mom kept a sony watchman by the kitchen sink so she could like uh watch the news while she was doing dishes um and it had a similar blurry, fuzzy-ass screen. But um, no, I did not get the TV tuner. I think they understood that, like, we're really going to warp his mind if he let if we let him just watch TV wherever he like. Right. They had like a like a like a like a flash vision of the iPad baby. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, but honestly, the, the, with all these issues out the gate, the Game Gear and the the crazy marketing strategy that went with it actually did work at first. And since the launch in mid 1991, they had moved four million units in the U.S. by the end of 19. 1993. Uh, and a surprising 364 games came out for the system, including that solid, some solid third party stuff from Disney, among others. And, uh, you know, they were not a failure right, right up top. They were, they were definitely um, a competitor legitimate for the Nintendo. So what happened? Well, it seems like a big culprit 
for the Sega Game Gear eventually failing and Sega turning away from consoles and systems entirely eventually after the Dreamcast, it came down to eggs and baskets and Sega needing to focus on the home console market over the handheld one. They went after this in the form of add-ons at first with this crazy, the 32X and the Sega Mega CD uh, attachments to the Sega Genesis, then eventually the Sega Saturn, which they put out to compete with N64 and the Sony PlayStation, which essentially came out of nowhere to dominate the CD-based gaming market um, and kind of killed the Saturn. But then near the end of the Game Gear's run, Nintendo released the Game Boy Pocket in 1996, which was even smaller. They managed to put out 10 hours of gameplay and just two AAA batteries. And just in time for Pokemon to become the biggest smash hit on portable consoles of all time, thus sealing the Game Gear's fate. Sega ended support for the Game Gear in 1997 and never made a handheld again. And then, to add insult to injury, Nintendo finally adds color to the Game Boy near the end of 1998 while keeping the same general battery size and weight specs that they had put into play all along. I wouldn't lump too much praise on the Game Boy Color. That thing was... Uh, I mean, let let I owned a worm light. I had a worm light. Yeah. I'm just gonna say. I, I but still, it's cool that they kind of they waited and and put it out when like they could and they could make a ton of money off of it. But the black and white strategy definitely worked out for them. I only have one last quote uh, before I am out of stuff to say. Uh, oh, oh, real quick though. Um, Imagineering, uh, you suck. Uh, Imagineering, they put out the all, all I, we, Jake and I realized that like this one company put out all those fucking games that we would all, of course, buy because they were like our favorite shows at the time. So they had uh, Ren and Stimpy, Simpsons, and Home Alone, as well as Barbie games, uh, a Swamp Thing game. That Home Alone 2 Game Boy game sucks ass. Mm -hmm. And I blame you, Imagineering, because you could have made fun, good games, or someone else should have, honestly. Uh, but instead, you had to get all the good licenses and put out dog shit Simpsons games. Dogs, awful Ren and Stimpy games. Oh, my God. Horrible. The worst. So uh, a special stinky shout out to Imagineering. Thanks for ruining my childhood. Uh, do you have anything else, Jake, before my final quote? God, I love the Game Boy. I love its games. I love... So uh, good. It's still so I good. I think uh, Link's Awakening is still my favorite uh, Legend of Zelda game. So Even good. With the post Breath of the Wild revelations. Kirby Adventure Wario Land. Uh, so many amazing Super games. Super Mario Land 3 Wario Land. So good. Incredible game. All those games. Yeah, no, just tons of great memories. Uh, getting to, I've been playing tons of uh, Kirby's Pinball Land. Solid. Original Tetris. Getting to bust out my uh, old Game Boy Pocket from the dusty box that I had it in uh, for decades at this point was a genuine joy. Yeah, I, I had a moment where I was like, oh, right, I bet I can play it on like a simple browser. And there is like a virtual arcade website where I could play Super Mario Land. And I loved it. It's also, they released it uh, a Game Boy on the Switch as well. So you can weird play. Weird selection on that yeah, one. I Very know. weird selection. Hopefully they'll keep putting some more stuff out though, for sure. Uh, All right, well, here's my final quote from Gunpei Yokoi to seal it all up. After we released the Game Boy, one of my staff came to me with a grim expression on his face. There's a new handheld on the market similar to ours, he said. The first thing I asked was, is it a color screen or monochrome? He told me it was color, and I reassured him, then we are fine. 
Brilliant, brilliant stuff, uh, for sure, out of Nintendo with this one. And uh, that's why they'll always reign supreme. Except for that Virtual Boy. Check out that episode if you want the uh, the, the fall of Gunpei Yokoi. Was, this was more the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, please check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We're putting out weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. Uh, as well as you get ad-free episodes from uh, these main feed episodes via the Patreon. And so much more. If, uh, at $15 a month, you can join us on our Discord for our Sunday study session. Always a blast to do with you, Jake. And I'll see you on there in a couple days. Uh, if you'd like to follow me further, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm streaming all week long uh, these days. And uh, Jake and I do a stream called Tears of the Clown on twitch.tv forward slash LPNTV. So check us out on that every Wednesday, 9 p.m. ET. Jake? Yeah, no, go to twitch.tv slash LPNTV. It is a, a, a wealth, a cornucopia of amazing shows and uh, programming from the last podcast network and you know i'm partially i'm very partial to uh <laughs> tears of a clown on wednesday nights hell yeah also check me out on twitch twitch.tv slash puppet jared that's the name of my vtuber avatar my flagship stream is thursday nights it's called the cartoon dumpster where we watch weird ass cartoons from the 80s 90s and 2000s and just uh joke around and it is always compelling always a great time and i love it when people come in and say hey Hey, you harangued me on the podcast to come watch this. I did it. And you're right. It's a fucking blast. Holden. It's a great stream. Literally last night we did it and we watched an episode of Dinosaucers. Oh boy. Where they all tried to fuck the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) I am not kidding. That is the plot of what happens. I love it. Uh, All right. And hey, always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.